0: We have been, over the last several weeks, uh, we have been in uh, Philippians 4, been looking at uh, Philippians 4 and, and looking at what it means for us to be satisfied, for us to be content, particularly when we are in a world that is seemingly so unsatisfied, dissatisfied, so discontent, and what it means to find our contentment in God and in the work of Christ. That first week, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that, that it's joy in the Lord that brings contentment in this life. And last week, we looked at, at provision, at God's provision, that God provides us with all that we need. And so this week, as, as we wrap up, um, we're going to be looking at how a satisfied soul, how, how contentment leads should lead to generosity and an outward focus. And so as we do this, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first couple of verses of Philippians 4, which you may have noticed we sort of skipped when we got started, and we're going to look at the last few verses of Philippians 4, which are not only the last verses of this chapter, but also the last verses of this letter to the church in Philippi. And so it's important for us to remember that as, as we do this, as we close this out, that, that contentment frees us from being focused on the self. Because when our needs are met, when when, when we ha- have joy, and when, when we know that our needs are, are met by God, we're, we're not stressed and dissatisfied with life, but rather... We know that we're provided for and content. You know, Philippians is a letter, we've talked about this, that that was written as an expression of gratitude by someone who is radically content. Even sitting in a prison cell, the the contentment of Paul flows forth out of Philippians. Philippians. Philippians two contains this this great doxology, the Christ hymn, in which in which Paul writes what it is for us to to have Christ. And and in Philippians three he he lays out the the eternal truths of the Christian life. And so now here he he comes to Philippians four, writing this this letter of of contentment and grateful expression of his trust and reliance in God. So we are going to be in Philippians 4? We're going to read the first, like I said, the first three verses and then skip to the last five. Will you stand with me as you're willing and able as we read God's Word together? So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this matter stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Judea and I urge Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. And now we drop down to verse 19. And so my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly God, I just pray that, that as, we, as we conclude our time looking at this, at this chapter of Philippians, that we, would, that we would come to understand and grasp and exude contentment and satisfaction. That we would come to, to rest in you in unity and in your glory. And in so doing, reflect your glory to the people of and the world around us. God, as we open your word and as we study it, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. Maybe may be seated. As we... As we get in here, as we, as we go back to the beginning of Philippians 4, what we see here is we see that there's a unity in mission that Paul is calling the church to. See, he's he's just issued this this strong calling to the church in Philippians 3. And I would urge you, if you have an opportunity today, this afternoon, or this week, to go back and read Philippians 3, to see what it is that God has called them to. Because he starts that first verse in chapter 4 with this word, therefore, or or as we read it today in in the CSB, it's so then... And when we see phrases like that, we've talked about it, right? It's connecting what Paul's about to say to what Paul has been saying. And so he's been laying out for them this this challenge of the Christian life, this challenge of, of, of what it is. And then he says, So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, In the midst of this, in the midst of of handing them this challenge, laying this challenge down in front of them, Paul is once again expressing his great affection for them. He loves them. He sees them as brothers and sisters. He sees them as his joy and his crown. We don't really talk like that to our friends much anymore, do we? Go back some time and read letters that were written between people even into the 19th century, but particularly in the 18th century. It's the time period that I'm the most familiar with. And people write these letters and they talk to each other and they express their affection and their care and their concern for one another in language like this. You know, I'm just going to guess if, if most of us these days, if we were to receive a text message from somebody that said, I love you. You are my joy and my crown. If, if we were to get that text message and it wasn't to come from our spouse or our significant other, and our spouse and our significant other were to see it, they would get a little upset, wouldn't they? What do you mean you're someone else's joy and crown? But this is the way we used to talk to each other. This is the way we used to express our love and our affection for one another. This is what Paul's doing. Paul's... Paul cares deeply for these people. Deeply for the members of this church at Philippi. And in, in, in that, he urges them, right there as he continues, he urges them to stand firm in the Lord. Now, what we've been looking at, this, the, 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 the meat, the center of Philippians 4, is Paul expressing to them how to stand firm. To stand firm in contentment. To be joyful. To think on things that are good and lovely and pure. That's what it means to Paul for them to stand firm in the Lord. But but before he gets there, before he he starts telling them to rejoice always in the Lord, I say again, rejoice. Before he gets there, there's there's this message. There's this issue... Of division in the church that he has to address. Because it's a, it's a threat to their unity and it's a threat to their joy and their contentment. So we see these, these two women who are named Yodia and Schenectady. And man, can we just be really thankful that we don't have those names running around anymore? I got a hard enough time with my first name being Stacia. Maybe if we have a daughter, I'll name her Euodia. No, I'm getting, I'm getting a no. There, these, these two women are not named anywhere else in Scripture. This is, the, just, this is the only place we know of them. But what do we know about them? We know that, that Paul um, names them as people who have been faithful co-workers of his. Women who have been involved in his mission work to bring the gospel to people. they've contended for the gospel. Man, that's not like they showed up at church and they, and they sang, and on the way out, they told the preacher how great he was, and, and that was. It. they contended for the gospel. They were in the trenches with him. And yet something has happened between the two of them, and they seem to have lost sight of the big picture because this difference has developed between the two of them. I I think this, this call that comes from Paul to settle their differences is all the more impressive because Paul doesn't name what their difference is. He doesn't tell us. We don't know if it was a if it was a, a doctrinal concern that they were divided on, if it was an ethical concern, if it was a concern about the governance of the church, if it was something something personal, you know? Maybe Schenectady st- stole Udia's chocolate chip cookie recipe. We don't know. Which is unusual, because in other places in Paul, he he sort of names what divisions and what's at the center of divisions. And he doesn't do that here. The thing it is, the thing that's the most important to Paul, the thing that rouses him to exhortation is not the issue itself, but the fact that they've fallen out and brought division into the fellowship. We, we, We get the picture here, that the dispute between them has spread throughout the church. And so Paul tells them they need to agree in the Lord. They need to set aside their differences for the sake of the gospel. See, there are three three truths about the church that can be found here. The first is, is that the church possesses a single task. What does Paul say? He says, they have labored alongside me. They have contended alongside me for the gospel. They were co-workers. See, where there's agreement as to what the gospel is and what ought to be done with it, there is no room for personal disagreement. Because the focus is on the gospel. One, the focus on the gospel ought to exclude the other, Disunity. Very often, of course, as at Philippi, it it doesn't. How many churches do we know of that are Harmony Baptist Church or Unity Baptist Church or Friendship Baptist Church that were founded after a church split? How many of us have heard stories about the church that split because they couldn't agree on the color of the carpet? I'm going to go out on a limb It's not directly addressed in Scripture, but I feel comfortable saying this. The color of the carpet is not a gospel issue. And yet we divide ourselves. But see, to agree on the gospel is the most fundamental form of unity. It involves a unity of mind and heart. To agree on what the gospel demands in its proclamation to the world is to create unity by common action. The singleness of the task ought to be reflected in the singleness and the unity of the workers. So that's the first thing that we learn about the church. The second thing that we learn about the church here is that the church ought to be marked by a mutual helpfulness. Paul tells the church in Philippi, Help these women. No Christian, we might say, is at liberty to stand aloof from the needs of other Christians. The very existence of the need is is a call to come to the aid and the help of your fellow Christians. See, Paul doesn't address Eudonia and Schenectady and say, look, I need you to go to the church for help. He says, I urge you to agree in the Lord and then I ask you, the church, to help them. The command is is for the church to make the first move. Whether whether these two ladies are up for it or not. Paul assumed that this element of mutual assistance was an essential part of the inter-Christian relationship. Of the relationship of Christ followers one to another. That's second. Third, the third thing we learn for the church here is that Paul displays the church as a place of fundamental oneness. People who are united by the fact that their names are in the book of life. There is a heavenly reality about the church. And brothers and sisters, there is no division in heaven. All who are, all who are there are one in Christ Jesus. Because the only people that are able to enter the kingdom are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those whose names are written in the book of life. Divisions within the church contradict this fundamental fact of life. Now, I want to be clear. There are things sometimes where there are divisions. We see divisions in the church. There are not denominational divisions in the church, aren't there? There are some fundamental ways that we understand the gospel that's different from some ways that our friends down the street understand the gospel. But there's still a a way to be united with them. To be unified with them. Because divisions within the body of Christ contradict the reality of heaven. See, the church on earth is called to be a reflection of that heavenly ideal, it's, it's, it's be, the nature of the church. It's the nature of this community of the redeemed to confess unity in heaven and to practice unity here on earth. And it's, it's that unity and that focus on mission that can bring contentment These first three verses of chapter 4 highlight the importance of being one mind within the church. Because the odds are that if the church is suffering division, then it's not focused outwardly on its mission in the world. The odds are that if the church is suffering division, it's focused inwardly on itself. So this this call of Paul to to generosity, this call to contentment starts with this call for unity within the body of Christ, unity that is focused on the mission of the church. To be a reflection of a heavenly reality and in the process to call people and show people Jesus. now we, we skip to the conclusion. And and these last these last few verses are the are the conclusion not only of this this sort of discourse that Paul has on contentment, but it's also the conclusion of this letter to Philippi. You know, Paul's shown how content and joyful he is, even in prison. He's shown what the, what the gospel, what the good news has done for him. But he turns around and he says, you know, this isn't just about me and what I've been able to experience, but it can be your experience as well. The trustworthiness of God is Christian truth. Starting next week through Christmas, we're going to be looking at the promise of God and how those promises are manifest, and how those promises have been fulfilled. Primarily, in the birth of Christ. God fulfills and honors His promises. Perfectly. God is trustworthy. Because if He were not trustworthy, He could not be... God. You know, that's the difference between, between the real, true, and living God and these, and these false gods. If, you ever, if you've ever read Greek or Roman or, or Norse or Indian or, or, or Celtic mythology, the, the, the gods, little g gods that they worship, aren't trustworthy, are they? I mean, there's a whole subgenre of Greek mythology about how untrustworthy Zeus is. Because, because those gods weren't real gods. Those were gods that we had made in our image. Those were gods that were reflections of us as human beings. And we do this all the time. We, we assume that, that God is just like us, except bigger and stronger and better. But God is not made in our image, but we are made in God's image and so we can be not terribly trustworthy and sometimes it's not on purpose right i i i will tell you something i promised this week that i would be at the brotherhood breakfast this morning but i didn't write it down and i didn't put it in my phone and so i got up i got showered i took care of the kid and he was really cute this morning And I came into the office, and I sat down at my desk, and there was a note that I had written to myself on Thursday. Don't forget men's breakfast. Well, guess what? I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't intentionally lie to Henry when I told him that I would be there. But I'm a human being, and I'm imperfect, and I forget things. I particularly forget things if I don't put them in my phone and set a reminder. God never, not once, has forgotten to show up. God, not once, has ever broken a promise, intentionally or unintentionally. We see in verse 19 where he says, My, my God, notice what he says about God, my God. That's the relationship that he has with with God, that Paul has with God. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Nothing will prove beyond the capacity of God. He will meet your need to the full. Because God's supply is not going to be limited to the size of your need but to the abundance of His riches. And and guess what? Your, Your need is minuscule in comparison to the abundance of God's riches. But the key to this, the key to all of this, is that last three words. In Christ Jesus. Christ mediates to us all of the benefits and blessings of God. But more than that, Christ himself is the sum of all of the blessings of God. Notice what it says here. It doesn't say through Christ Jesus. But in Christ Jesus. Jesus is not is not the the channel through which God's blessings flow, but it's the place in which they are deposited. It's because of Christ that Paul is contented. And And it's Christ whom he offers to us as the means and the guarantee for our contentment. Because for Paul... The person who possesses Christ possesses everything. But let me say it this way. It's not just Paul that says that. It's God's Word that says that. It's 2,000 years of church history that says that. It's the experience of believers around the world and through time that says it. To possess Christ is to possess everything. See, what's Paul been doing? What's, what's Paul done just before this? He's been commending the church in Philippi for their generosity, right? He's been saying, he's been saying, you know, I'm, I'm so thankful for the things that you've done for me not that i seek the gift but i seek the profit that is increasing to your account you sent gifts in my need several times there's there's this element where their generosity has led and is leading to god's provision because god's not concerned with the, our receiving from him he also wants us to give He wants others to receive from us because in that, He is glorified. In that, it brings Him greater glory. We're able to be generous because of the generosity that God has shown for us in Christ. Remember, Christ is the key. He's the key to contentment. He's the key to generosity. He's the key to hope. He's the key to provision. Christ is the key. Because it is in Christ that God is most fully glorified. As we reflect and as we act out God's generosity by our own generosity, we are showing our contentment in Christ and we are extending, reflecting, and being a part of God's glory. Let's, let's, let's look at the story of Paul in the church in Philippi. Paul's outward focus, Paul's desire to go and to take the gospel to the nations has, has led him to the Philippians. And in that process, as he's come to the Philippians and as he's brought them the gospel, they have received and met Christ. And then there's this, there's this opportunity that Paul has to go on and, and their generosity coming out of knowing Christ has allowed Paul to take the gospel to other places and has been a reflection of God's glory. God, Paul prays for them that their love will grow more and more, so that whether or not he's there, he will hear of the demonstration of their faith. That's back in the first chapter. See, their generosity to Paul and to others is the fruit of having them having met Christ. And so their generosity and their outward focus is a reflection and a demonstration of God's glory and of God's salvation. A life of contentment will lead us from being will lead us to be more outwardly focused toward others. And that in turn provides us with the opportunity to witness to our faith and to point others to the source of our joy contentment and satisfaction is sorely lacking in our world. Just look. And so when we, who claim to be followers of Christ, when we aren't satisfied, what we are testifying to the world is that Christ isn't enough. Which, hopefully I don't have to say this, Is hogwash. Christ is enough. So when we, if and when we aren't content in Christ, we need to seriously evaluate our relationship with God to determine if we truly know and understand what it is that God has done for us. See, this is how Paul concludes the letter. With a warm farewell and a final word of blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Like Paul, the Philippians needed God's grace to continue to joyfully stand firm in the Lord. And we need that same grace to continue to joyfully stand firm in Him. Life is going to happen. But when we come back to Christ over and over again, it gives us the ability to stand firm in the Lord, to be content... And to be vessels of his glory and his messengers of his gospel into all the world. There's this idea that that we sometimes have that the gospel is simply for those who haven't heard it. I, I have friends who have been told, You preach the gospel too much, give us something else. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded always of the work of God in our lives and in the redemption of His creation. There's this this phrase, this idea that comes out of the Reformation that the church needs to be reformed and always reforming. Reformed and always reforming. The idea is is that if we aren't vigilant, that corruption can re-enter the church. Let's take that same idea and apply it to ourselves. We need to be saved and always being saved. Yes, we are saved once. I preach eternal security. We can't lose our salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. But there is a need to continue to grow in Christlikeness, to strive for holiness, to experience sanctification. We have been saved. But if we are not careful, the enemy can still move in and separate us one from another to create division and disunity and can cause us to turn inward instead of outward and grow in our discontent. And what happens when that happens? When when we're divided one from another, when we turn inward, when we grow in discontent, We present a testimony that Jesus isn't enough, that we're concerned about our safety, our provision, our survival, because God isn't going to provide for us. Our testimony becomes an anti-Christ testimony. And we become unwitting tools in the hands of the enemy. Sharing our contentment and the source of it with others is evangelism. When when our contentment manifests itself in our lives, there's a generosity that pours out of us. And I'm not talking about about money. I'm talking about time. Generosity of time. A generosity of spirit. A generosity of kindness. If every person in this county who confessed Christ was simply kind to everyone that they came and T- contact with, the world would look a little different, wouldn't it? There's a generosity that should pour out of us that's, that's focused not on ourselves and on our needs and in our concerns, but focused on others. And being the reflection of God's glory in the world around us. And so this week... As we move toward Thanksgiving, and man, I'm really excited. Turkey, and, and I get to make the sweet potato pie. We're going to Pennsylvania. I get to teach those Yankees what sweet potato pie is. But as we move toward Thanksgiving, and as we, as, we, as we joyfully express our our thanks to God for what He has done for us. As we, as we express our contentment in Him, let us think about how it is that we can manifest generosity in our lives. How it is that we can not be turned inward but be turned outward. I was watching a... Some, some folks that I, I enjoy watching their sailing videos. And they're in the Chesapeake right now. And they went to visit a, a lighthouse museum. And they were looking at the lens. And there's this, there's this tiny light that sits in the middle of the lens, but then the way the lens is constructed, and it focuses that light down into a single beam. And then that process, it gives information, right? It lets other sailors know that there's there's something there. What would it be for us to be lighthouses? Where our lives take the glory of God and focus it down in such a way so that the people around us can see it. And it can be a beacon to them so that they know where they are and they know how they are to be saved from the storms and the tempests and the rocks and the shoals of life. So, enjoy the parade. I'm going to. Enjoy the football games. I'm probably not. Enjoy your friends and your family and your food. Polish and sharpen your lens to reflect the glory of God out to the world around us. To be a beacon and a hope to a world that is experiencing storms and rocks and wrecks. Our hymn of invitation this morning is I' is 606. I gave my life.